warm summer morning. It's good to have, I know it's not officially, officially summer yet, but it sure feels like it out there, doesn't it? And uh, <clears throat> I was blessed this weekend to be able to go away. Some of you saw some pictures on Facebook, among other things you probably saw on Facebook, but uh, uh, some pictures. I was able to go away with the boys on a little father-son retreat uh, out in uh, Wisconsin to a little cabin. We had some friends invite us to go. We got to spend the, the days fishing and kayaking and trying not to fall in the lake. Uh, it was good times, and I was really excited to have that. And so uh, this sermon was prepared while sitting on a porch overlooking a beautiful lake. So, um, hey, I did have one real quick announcement I, I wanted to, to make before I get going with the actual message. And that first is, uh, you may have noticed if you have driven by, uh, especially if you're coming from that direction, looked up at the roof of the building, that there's some shingles that are peeling and... <laughs> The things like that bubbling, and um, we need a new roof. We had experienced this past winter uh, a leak out here as well, and so we need a new roof on the building. And so uh, we got uh, bids on shingles and steel, and anyway, we ended up uh, choosing to go with the shingles, the 40-year shingles, uh, because it was an incredibly large price difference, honestly, in, in how much it was. So we ended up going with a 40-year shingle, um, but the cost to do the whole roof of this building is going to be just under $30,000. It's 28300 I think, was the, uh, the actual price. So um, we're going to go ahead and do that, and they're giving us 90 days to figure out payment and stuff. We were going to do it in the fall anyway, but they had an opening earlier, and I thought, wow, maybe this is God... <laughs> potentially letting us get a new roof before the heavy rains and the winter snows and everything hit. And so we went ahead and booked that. We're going to be doing some things to come up with that money as well. But I wanted to let you guys know, because this is an opportunity for us to put a face on the need and say, hey, we have a $30,000 need. And there may be some of you out there that have the means, I don't know, but have the means you may pray about it and feel like God is leading you to give extra over and above your normal tithes or offerings to cover the cost of the roof or partially or anyway. It's going to take all of us, and it's going to take all of us doing our part on that. But you know what? God has provided a lot more than $30,000 for things in the past for this church and for other churches, and I know he can do it as well. And uh, he can do it this time as well. And so we're just going to believe, we're going to pray, but we're also going to try and give sacrificially as well. That's what I'm asking you to consider doing as well. Um, So we'll probably do, uh, I mean, the deacons and I are kicking around some other ideas of some different things we can do to to raise some, some money. Um, and I don't know if we're going to end up being able to do an installment plan or whatever with the company, but um, it's a company that I know has worked with the school before out at Faith, and so they're used to working with faith-based organizations so, and churches and things like that. So anyway, I just wanted to let you know, so you heard it from me, um, because I, I, we thought we were going to wait till October to do it, and then I'm sitting up there at the cabin, and, and I get this text message, hey, can you call me? And so I call, hey, I'm really sorry, as one of the deacons, hey, I'm really sorry to bother you, I know you're with your boys, you're trying to have a, you know, three days of getaway or whatever, but here's this thing, we have this opportunity, and so, um, so we decided to go ahead and do it. So anyway, I'm just making that known to you, um, sounds like a lot of money, it's a lot of money. I'm not worried about it at all, um, because my God, as we said, what, a couple weeks ago, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Maybe he'll sell some of the cattle. So anyway, that's, uh, we'll continue to pray, pray about that and see how we can all um, be a service there. But with that, let's, let's get to the message. We have got one week left in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to welcome, sorry, welcome all, 
I was up there, and so I'm totally off my game now. Uh, welcome to those who are joining us online. Please go ahead and leave us a comment. Let us know you're there. And please come and join us in person as you feel comfortable. We would love to have you here with us. But uh, we've been going through a series called Greatest Sermon Ever. And it is our walk, uh, kind of passage by passage, verse by verse, through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been in this for a few months now. After today, we have one Sunday left, and we'll be done with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We'll be transitioning to a new series for the next part of the summer through the book of Micah. And I'm excited for us to dip our toes into the Old Testament and see Jesus there as well. So make plans to join us. Make plans to bring a friend with you. But following that series... Um, we're going through a. We're going to be going through a topical series that I'm calling right now "Replant," uh, where we're going to be hearing about what's going on, uh, wh- where we're going as a church, and and as we we really relaunch. I know a lot of churches are, are kind of in this phase of regathering after COVID and everything, but uh, where we've come as a church uh, in the last two to three years, and so and I mean. I, I've, in August, I will have been here a year. I can't even, like, I can't fathom that it's been almost a year, but it has. Um, but where we've come as a church in the last two to three years, and kind of, it's almost as if we are relaunching as a church. Replaying. We're still Hope Bible Fellowship. We still are the same people, right? Um, but it's like we're, we're really like a plant that's been pulled up out of its old nasty pot, right, and added fresh soil and put it in that I know nothing about actually replanting a garden. My wife does all that stuff. Um, And and then replanted it in fertile soil in the ground to see that new growth. And so that's really what we're going to do. So uh, we're going to be hearing about during that replant series what we're going to be doing as a church, directions we're going. I hope and, 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 and how we are going to be a fellowship of believers here that makes disciples who make disciples. And we want to be missional. We want to be on mission in our community. And Anyway, I hope uh, that you will look forward to this as I am. I hope that you will uh, pray for me with God's wisdom and direction, for God's wisdom and dir- direction, and that his name would be glorified as I prepare to share those things with you as well. So anyway, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we heard how Jesus taught that there are two roads— There's two ways, two gates, and there's two crowds that choose one of these two paths. The narrow gate is the gate to the straight and hard way, the path of Jesus. We said that he is the gate you must enter through in order to be on this straight gate, this straight road that leads to life. It is through a relationship with Jesus, through trusting the good news of the gospel that that he came to earth, 100% God, 100% man, the very son of God, God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died, gave his life willingly on a cross, a death reserved for terrible criminals, and in doing so, he absorbed the wrath of God that was due us in our sin. See, we were in the path of the wrath of God, and we couldn't do anything about it. And so God himself, because not only is he love, but he is also just. And so that sin had to, had to be paid for. It had to be punished. And so Jesus stepped in and took that punishment upon himself on the cross, and he died. And three days later, he rose from the grave, showing that God had accepted that sacrifice as sufficient to pay for our sin. And if we trust in him, uh, and we repent of our sins, and we believe that good news of the gospel, we trust in Jesus Christ's salvation, that we will have eternal life, that we will step through that narrow gate, so to speak, and we will be on the path of the straight and the narrow. So there's a straight path, but there's also a broad way that leads through the wide gate. It's easy. It's very inclusive of everyone, and it welcomes many on this road to destruction. 
And so we said you needed to make a choice. Are you going to follow Jesus or not? It's not an easy road, but he is where the joy is. But now in verse 15 and following through, we're going to be through verse 23, Jesus shifts from talking about the path of destruction to talking about those who are actually the teachers of destruction. Now, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 15 through 23. Uh, Bethany and I got married on August 19th of the year 2000, which, guys, best decision uh, in marriage is having it on an even year because you can figure out how long you've been married. There's no danger of me having to like skip millennium in there because we're probably not going to be married more than 100 years, right? So we, we get married, and I was young. I was 22. She was 19, uh, just a baby. Uh, and um, and we, we were both basically babies at that point. Um, we got married, and uh, we started out married life, living in a little one-room apartment, and everything's good. But then you come to the first kind of major holidays. You got Thanksgiving and then Christmas. And uh, my family was really small, and Bethy's family is gigantic. Um, and so... We need to try and spend, you know, we got to spend some Christmas there. I want to go back to Iowa and spend some Christmas with my family. And so we get in our little 1990 Ford Tempo, uh, which we might as well have been driving a roller skate with, you know, chipmunks driving the motor. And we get in our little car and we go out to her mom's and we go to her mom's, this is her mom's grandfather's, this is Bethany's great-grandfather's for the traditional Christmas Eve service. And then our plan is to leave there by 8 or 8.30 and drive from there all the way to my parents' house, which is about four, four and a half hours from there at the time, okay? And so we get in our, now we don't have cell phones, Okay. Uh, it, there had been an ice storm and snow, and the roads, the roads were okay, but like parking lots and stuff were very slick. And so we are driving along Route 136 from uh, up by Keokuk, uh, I, uh, sorry, up by um, Wayland, Missouri, over, none of you know where this is, but uh, over west, we're driving west, and we come to a little place called Downing, Missouri, uh, which is kind of by Lancaster. Again, none of you know where this is. Um, if you do, we should talk because I probably know you. Um, and, we're, and, and you may be related to her. So we're driving along there. We're like an hour from her parents' house. And we're like three, three and a half from my parents' house. And all of a sudden, I feel this weird pop, 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 pop. And we had a flat tire. So I got my new beautiful bride. I've only been married for, you know, three, four, four months, I guess. And uh, we've got a flat tire. And it's 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve, and we pull into this parking lot, which was a, uh, a sawmill, or a lumberyard, one of the, I think it was a sawmill. Um, obviously, it was clearly marked. We pull in this parking lot. It was gravel, but it was completely iced over, so I get out. I got to change the tire, put the little donut on. I know this is a long story, sorry. So I get out, and I try to, I try to put the thing on, and they're, it's all rounded off, and they're rusted on, and because this car was, we, we paid cash for this car back then. It was awful, and uh, I couldn't get them off. I'm like, I got to get help, but it's nighttime, and I don't want to leave this beautiful young lady in the car by herself and go, so I, but I'd say, okay, lock the doors. I was very like, lock the doors. If anybody, you know, scream like the Dickens, whatever. And so I said, I think there's a house down here. So I take off walking down this road, middle of the night, Christmas Eve, because uh, there's nothing open. We have no cell phones. So I walk up to the door of this house, and I kid you not, I am, I, 
100% not joking, I walk up to the house and I get ready to knock on the door of the house and there is a sign on the door that says, forget the dog, beware of the owner. (laughs) Well, this isn't optimal. And so I knock on the door and here comes this guy to answer the door and here come these giant dogs, huge dogs. I I don't know if they were Rottweilers, I don't really remember what I wasn't really focused on what style of dog they were. I was just focused on, could we put saddles on those and ride them to my parents? Uh, Anyway, long story short, that guy got somebody to help us somehow. I don't remember the whole, like, I think he had to call somebody that was like a sheriff's deputy or something. Anyway, a guy came out, he got it changed, and we got to my parents at like 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. So here's here's the point of that whole story. You don't put a sign up... (laughs) saying, beware of dog. Okay, I realize this one said beware of owner. But you don't put a sign like that up, beware of dog, or forget the dog, beware of owner, uh, even if you think people might be scared of the dog. You don't put that up if you've got a pet goldfish. If you've got something kind of harmless, you don't put that up. My friend's family that I went and stayed with in Biloxi, Mississippi years ago, we were dropping his brother off. They had a pit bull named Cookie. And they were like, don't go out the back door. Cal and Zaxon, my friend's name was Zaxon. Cal and Zaxon, don't go out the back door because you'll get attacked. You don't tell people that if it's a chipmunk in the backyard. You put up warning signs because there is a danger. There's a danger that you want people to be on the alert of. So Jesus, in this passage, what he does is he warns his followers about false teacher and he false teachers, excuse me. And he doesn't warn them about false teachers because they're not there. He warns them about false teachers because they were already in existence. They were already there and they needed to be alert. He wanted them to know. Now, the danger of false teachers is addressed many other places in the New Testament besides right here. God repeatedly in the Bible warns his followers against these dangerous and misleading teachers. Look, it's 2021. You don't have to go very far to see some false teaching. Christians, people who profess Christ, who teach something that is against what the Bible has to say. In other words, against what God says. And so you have people following, claiming to follow God who are doing the opposite of what God says. So you don't have to look very far. There are many places of warning in the New Testament. We're just going to look at a couple. I'm going to tell you the rest if you want to write them down, or if you want the notes afterwards, I can give them to you as well. But um, places of warning in the New Testament about false teachers. Well, Jesus does it again in Matthew 24, 23 through 26. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And Paul would also, in various places, warn the church about false teachers. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 through 4 and, and 12 through 15. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. And then Peter will also pick up this warning about false teachers in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 22. Again, we're not going to read that whole passage, but if you want to write that down, it's 2 Peter 2, 1 through 22. Now, the beloved, right, John, John also warns in 1 John 2, 18 through 23, and 1 John 4, 1 through 6, and in 2 John 7 through 11. And Jude, that little 25-verse book right at the end, before, right before Revelation, Jude spends his 25-verse book dedicated to what? The subject of false teachers. Jesus refers to false prophets, false teachers, as wolves in sheep's clothing. And here's the point. Here's, here's, here's what I want you to gather from today's message. I'm going to kind of give you this up front. And then we're going to dive into the scripture and and explain it all. It matters which road we travel. It matters wide or narrow, hard, easy, broad, narrow. It matters which road we travel. Secondly, it matters which spiritual teachers we listen to. I've had people sitting in my office who have told me about people they are listening to or watching. and And I try to be, I don't want to be offensive, right? But I will say hey, that guy, he doesn't believe correct things. He teaches things that are not in keeping with good doctrine. Or, or flat out, you shouldn't listen to that guy. And, and I've had people come back and say, yeah, I stopped listening to that guy. You're right. I looked it up. I did some research, and you're right. It matters which road we travel. It matters which spiritual teachers we listen to. And third, it matters which moral guides we follow. It matters which moral guides we follow. But if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never stepped through that gate, that narrow gate onto the road of life, then, then the rest of this isn't going to matter a whole lot to you because you've got to get that straight first. But let's read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father God, as we come, uh, God, I, I feel the heaviness of this passage. I feel the heaviness of this message. Father, may we, may we struggle well. May we wrestle with it and submit to what you have to tell us. I pray you would be big here, Jesus. May me, my opinions... 
all of that just decrease. And you increase, Jesus. This is about you. This is for your name and for your glory. I pray you would be glorified in this time. You would speak to our hearts. You would convict us of sin and bring us quickly to repentance. Give us godly sorrow that leads to repentance, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. I am indebted to a guy named Danny Aiken, uh, Dr. Danny Aiken, for his help in, in seeing the outline of this passage. But the first thing we come to that I want to talk about is the good tree versus the bad tree. That we have a choice. This, so this message and last week's message started out as one sermon, uh, and I broke them into two because it was just too much. And so it was initially it was your choice part one and part two. But now, because we're talking about good teachers, bad teachers, really false teachers, we're talking about true and false. The good tree versus the bad tree. Jesus wants us to be careful which trees from which we pick fruit. Be careful which trees you're picking fruit from. And here are three principles that will help guide us uh, as to what teachers to listen to. These are three principles that are going to help us as we figure out what teachers to listen to and, and, and who to pick fruit from, so to speak, okay? Number one, false teachers are deceptive, hence the name false. False teachers are deceptive. We see that, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Be on your guard, beware when it tells us to be on our guard, that is in the present imperative tense. We've talked about this tense a lot because Jesus uses this tense a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. And what this means is you've got to keep your guard up. You've got to keep on paying attention. You've got to keep on watching out. This is to ceaselessly be on guard. This is threat level orange or threat level red or maybe threat level midnight depending on if you're an office fan or not. All right? This is, this is, your threat level is high and you are watching out. Because these false prophets in sheep's clothing, get it? They pretend to be sheep. They pretend to be sheep. They seem harmless. They wear sheep's clothing. They look like part of the church. They look like Christians maybe at, at the onset. But they're not sheep. They are not part of Christ's body. When you peel back the disguise, you'll see that they prove to be ravenous wolves. I love that that word ravenous is in there because it doesn't just say wolf. Sometimes we think, oh, wolf in sheep's clothing. But we forget how ravenous wolves can be. Look, I'm not going to recommend this movie. So when you hear me, rec- when we hear me talk about a movie... Don't, don't ever take that as a recommendation that you should go watch it because everybody's line of what they watch and don't is different, okay? But there's a Liam Neeson movie called The Gray uh, where he's out in Alaska and, and he's being tracked by these huge man-eating wolves. And when I thought of ravenous wolves, I thought of that where they just tear people apart. They will tear you apart. False teachers who come in in sheep's clothing They will tear apart you. They will tear apart a church. Some of you have experienced that before. Looks can be deceiving. 
They may not appear dangerous at first glance. Don Carson said, The false prophet can only be someone who does not advocate the narrow way presented by Jesus. They do not tell the whole truth, and their total message is false. Because they don't tell the whole truth. If we just say, oh, well, but they quote Scripture and they back that up. Well, I seem to remember Satan doing that and twisting it to tempt Jesus. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must be spiritually discerning, never letting our guard down and testing every teaching by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible. The Word of God is our standard. It is the measuring post. It's not an issue of if the person is eloquent in speech or if they're entertaining as a teacher or they have good stories and illustrations. If you remember more their story than the message they pre- that they actually preached, you might want to ask yourself, well, what is the message that they're preaching? The Word of God is our standard. Being eloquent... Being entertaining is not the issue. The issue is faithfulness to the Bible, faithfulness to Scripture. They're deceptive, and they are deceptive even to themselves. I'll remind you that in Scripture, the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they thought they were on the up and up. They thought they were doing the Lord's work. They looked good, but we find out they were whitewashed tombs leading people astray and leading people to their death. We must pay close attention. So false teachers are deceptive. Secondly, false teachers can be detected. False teachers can be detected. Jesus gives us the tools to, to see or to detect false teachers. You know, like a stud finder for false teachers. Any other guys, whenever it's time to do something with the wall and you need a stud finder, is it just me or does every guy pull that out and be like, oh, got one right here. Okay, yeah, see, the wives are all laughing because we all do it, right? Sometimes when I need a stud finder, I just go get Bethany and say, hey, you're good at this. Anyway, sorry. Um we got to pay, sorry, that one wasn't in the notes. Uh, we got to pay close attention. We got to pay close attention because false, false teachers can be detected. But here's the thing, they don't generally jump out and announce that they're false teachers. Charles Quarles notes this, false teachers disguise themselves as Jesus' disciples in order to live undetected among the sheep of the flock and thus devour the sheep with great ease. Their mission as false teachers is to live undetected, secret agents among the sheep and be able to pick off any of the sheep they want undetected. That's why they are there. Jesus tells us that we can detect the false teachers by their fruit, the fruit they produce. As I read in one commentary, and and he says right here, uh, grapes come from grapevines, not thorn bushes. Right? Apples come from apple trees, not freight trucks. Right? I don't go to a dandelion to pick a banana. It's because 
it's because a fruit, you can tell a tree by its fruit. You can tell that plant by its fruit. It seems so easy when we say it that way. It seems so easy that we can look at someone, the outcome of someone's teaching, and we can see who they really are and what they really are. But many times instead, we make excuses because they're really nice, or I've known them a long time, or they're a good communicator, or they're winsome, or they have good stories. But Jesus wants us to watch how teachers behave towards God's people and then examine the fruit of what they teach. You should be examining the fruit of what I teach. You should be looking at how I behave towards God's people. And you need to measure that by the Word of God. There was a group in the book of Acts called the Bereans, and they had the Apostle Paul talking to them. Okay? This guy wrote a whole lot of the New Testament. They had the Apostle Paul talking to them, and they, it says, they checked everything by the Word of God to see if those things were so. So the Word of God is to be our standard, whether you're talking about some teacher you're watching on TV or the internet or me. He wants us to see and examine what kind of fruit they teach, and we find that they produce bad fruit. There's two essential tests that can expose false teachers who work at slipping into our communities of faith, our churches. There's two tests, the doctrinal test and the practical test. I'm going to tell you how to do that. The doctrinal test, number one, this, this test asks a basic question. Do their teachings line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The message I started out the message with. Does their teaching line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that it is not of works? It lines up with the true gospel. Do they, as Danny Aiken asks, avoid the deadly mathematics of false teachers? So, you might be asking, what are the deadly mathematics of false teachers? I like this because most of us think math is deadly anyway. The deadly mathematics of false teachers is this. They add to the Bible. They subtract from the person and work of Christ. They multiply the requirements of salvation. And they divide the people of God by a divisive and destructive spirit. I love what Aiken lays out there. So we, we want to look at their doctrinal test, their teachings. Do their teachings line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they add to the Bible? Do they subtract from the person and work of Christ? Do they multiply requirements of salvation? Do they divide people by a divisive and destructive spirit? That's the doctrinal test for, for finding a false teacher. Second is a practical test. So we got the doctrinal test, now we got the practical test. And we need both. Problem is, a lot of people just want to measure on practical means or just doctrinal means. But you have to have both. We have to watch our life and our doctrine closely, we find in Scripture. The practical test asks questions like these Are they legalists on one hand or completely allow anything on the other? Do they throw off all contrasting? 
to the, uh, excuse me, do they throw off all contrasting to the extreme or do they seek to shackle us with legalistic obligations that are in all reality suffocating to the people of the church? So, so we need to start by saying expecting Christians to be obedient to Scripture, that's not legalism, okay? Legalism is adding all kinds of stuff on top of that, right? So practically, are they legalists adding all kinds of rules to keep you, you know, and, and maybe they're personal rules that they assign to themselves to keep them from temptation or from sin, but then they say everybody has to do it that way, that's legal, and they hold you to that standard rather than the standard of Scripture. That's legalism. Or are they antinomians, on the other hand, which just letting everything go, well, it's all grace, so because everything's forgiven and everything's grace, you can go ahead and sin, it's fine. So are they go, go one way or the other? It's the practical test. How do they live out their life? Or do they shackle us and suffocate us with legalism? We can detect false teachers by looking at both their doctrine and their practice. Their, their teaching and their lives tell a story. The problem, I fear, is that we don't want to read the story they're telling. Their lives and their practice are telling us a story... And the warning lights should be going off, but they're really popular. Or they, ha- they tell me something that really, really moved me or made me feel good. Or I identified with that story he was saying. But here's the problem, and this is the third point under this, is that false teachers will be destroyed. In the end, they'll be exposed as the very ones who are traveling on that broad road to eternal destruction. Their destiny is sealed. It's settled. They do not produce good fruit. And in the end, they'll be cut down and tossed into the fire. Now, this should be said, they should still be called to repent. Because they are not dead and so they may not be beyond repenting for their false teaching and coming to believe the true gospel. Matthew 3.10, though, says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here's the huge warning for all of us. Those who follow the false teachers experience the same fate as the false teachers. Those who follow them have the same fate. They have the same eternal destiny. Daniel Doriani writes this, Many may deceive for a time, but words and deeds eventually reveal where the heart lies. No one evades God's justice forever. Bad trees, trees that bear no fruit, are cut down and thrown into the fire. But it is not enough to examine others. We must watch ourselves as well. They deceive others, but they also deceive themselves. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I a false teacher? I mean, ask that of yourself. Am I a false teacher? Are you a false teacher? If you are, repent (laughs) and believe the good news. Turn away from that and turn towards the right teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not dead yet. 
So we have the good tree and the bad tree. We've got these false teachers. And then we come to a point in the passage of genuine confession of the obedient versus the false profession of the disobedient. Verses 21 through 23. I'm going to read these verses again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These verses are genuinely terrifying. They've been called some of the most terrifying verses in the entire Bible. But the words of these verses flow naturally from verses 13 through 20 preceding it. And if they make you tremble when you read them, you're not alone. It's a frightening thing to think that we could say, that I could say, Jesus is my Lord, and hear him respond by saying, I never knew you. Aiken wrote, to think I could preach and even do miracles in his name and have him say to me on the day of judgment, depart from me, you lawbreakers, is horrifying. It ought to send shivers down the spine and cause our hearts to skip a beat. And these words should drive us not to ask if we know Jesus, but rather ask, does Jesus know me? Dominating this passage is the idea of lordship. Four times in the two couplets, we see the word Lord. What Jesus gives us is a clear distinction between a false profession and a true profession. He again gives us a test to distinguish between the two. And Jesus' test works. It's ironclad. And here's what it is. First, We give evidence that we know him by our obedience. Salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. The outflow of a saved person, of a Christian, of a redeemed person, of someone who's been adopted into the family of God, someone who truly follows Christ, the outflow of a heart that has been rescued will be good works, a changed life, an obedience to God's word. Jesus is not downplaying our profession of him as Lord, okay? He's not downplaying us professing that he is Lord. It's important. The Bible's clear about that in Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what do we do with that? Well, well, this implies that only by the Spirit's enablement can we truly and authentically declare that Jesus is Lord. And that this is a sign or evidence of authentic Christianity. But as it says in one commentary, Jesus wants us to understand that we can profess Christ as Lord without knowing Christ as Lord. We can profess Christ as Lord without knowing Christ as Lord. Let me give you an example of this. 
You ever watch the Grammys? I, I feel there's the Oscars, another award show, but the Grammys, I think, are kind of the best example of this. Where they have best category for best whatever, best rock song, best rap album, right? Hey, we're going to give this award to, and they announce the winner, and the winner comes up. And the winner, their song was about uh, licentious behavior. It was about uh, womanizing and doing drugs and shooting people and, uh, you know, all kinds of sex and lewd behavior and everything else. And they step up to the microphone, they accept their Grammy, and they say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can profess that Jesus is Lord without knowing him as Lord. It is possible, according to this passage, to profess Christ as Lord and for Jesus to deem your profession as inauthentic and false. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the test of if a profession is true or false? It's a changed and obedient life. A changed life that's obedient to the Lord reveals that faith is true. That's the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the one that professes Jesus as Lord and does the will of my Father in heaven. An obedient life is evidence that your profession of Christ is true and real. That doesn't say a perfect life is evidence. It says an obedient life is evidence that your profession of Christ is real and true. An obedient life would be one characterized by the things Jesus said to do. And one of the things Jesus said to do was repent and believe the good news. And so, no, and some of you are out there, man, I, I can't be fully perfect. Yes, I know. I know that. But when you sin, you can repent. Charles Spurgeon said, nothing will prove us to be true Christians but a sincere doing of the Father's will. Those who do the Father's will prove that they know the Father. Again, faith by, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. But the outflowing of it will be in obedience to the Lord. That's why it's important that when people come to our church and they profess Christ, that we then disciple them. You're going to be hearing a lot about this in the future. Uh, that we then disciple them and how to follow Jesus, what that looks like, what an obedient life looks like, because they're not going to just automatically know it. Second, we give evidence that we do not know him by our disobedience. The picture here is that they stand before God in the end-time judgment And they tell God that they prophesied in his name. That they drove out demons in his name. They'll say they did many miracles in his name. And even with all of this, they'll hear from the Lord, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers. The word lawbreakers is the Greek word anemia. And it connects back to this idea of them failing to do the will of my Father in heaven. Here's what we see. We see some people standing there before God that have a very impressive resume from a human perspective. They've casted out demons and done miracles, prophesied, stuff that humans would platform them for. 
But God has a different way of seeing things than mere humans. Carson wrote about this, and he he says this, and it's just good. It is true, of course. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance. Church membership without rigorous church discipline. Discipleship without obedience. Blessing without persecution. Joy without righteousness. Results without obedience. In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real, i.e. obedient ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. There's a lot in there. The problem is, when we follow those false teachers down the well, we're actually seeing the results today in the church today. In, in the church in like across the board, not just our church, right? We've got easy believism. And so many people leaving the churches because they thought they could just profess Christ and live however they want. And when they find out that, no, if your heart is really changed, you will be obedient. And by your lack of obedience, you are giving us a sign that your heart is not changed. That you're still in the target of the wrath of God that that you still need to know Jesus and be known by Jesus. At this point, I would invite the musicians up, but I'm already up here, so. (laughs) New problems that I come across all the time. So what do you do? What are, what, what's the application? What are the implications? Well, I've given you a bunch of it. The, the practical test, the doctrinal test, the test of obedience. John fourteen six says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to get on the narrow road. It's Jesus. That's the starting point for obedience, is believing the good news, repenting of your sin, and trusting in Christ. John six sixty eight through 69 says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, there's a lot of people telling you and teaching a lot of things out there. But when they differ from what Jesus says, we would do well to remember Simon Peter here. Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And John fourteen fifteen says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I told the boys this weekend, we were, we were just sitting around playing card games and stuff, and I kept saying this, life is full of choices. 
The most important choice is whether or not you submit to Jesus as Lord. Life is full of choices. Good fruit, bad fruit, true teacher, false teacher. But that ultimate choice is whether or not you'll submit to Jesus as Lord. Would you stand up and pray with me? I'm going to ask Dana to close us in prayer, and, uh, and then we're going to sing another song. So, Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the message that Pastor Cal just presented to us, Lord, from you, Lord. And I just pray that as we leave, Lord, as we, we come up and stand up and, and worship you, Lord, that we really think about...